This is hell. This is hell, and we are honored to host our show live from the traditional lands of the Treaty of Chicago in traditional Potawatomi territory. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Alex, what's this week's question from hell? This week's question from hell is, why are you suspending your presidential campaign? <laughs> why are you suspending your presidential campaign? Why are you suspending your presidential campaign? I'm going to say it's because I wanted to go out and prosecute more African-Americans and throw them in jail. <laughs> what do you think? Is that a little too, <laughs> little too mean-spirited? <laughs> Oh, Kamala Harris, how we missed you. Leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, and you will have a chance at winning a book that we already featured on this week's show, Charles King's Gods of the Upper Air, How a Circle of Renegade Anthropologists Reinvented Race, Sex, and Gender in the 20th Century. You can hear our interview with Charles at thisishell.com. And you should listen because Charles's book is going to make our annual year-end list of favorite books to be featured here on This Is Hell. We'll be announcing uh, all of our favorite books in 2019 during next week's shows, streaming live at thisishell.com on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, and then broadcast for the very first time Saturday morning on Chicago's Sound Experiment, WNUR 89.3 FM, and in a continuous loop from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. all day Saturday, again, at This Is Hell. Dot com. Today on This Is Hell, there's an organization whose members include, let's see, Steve Bannon. Uh, the group's president is the Family Research Council's president, Tony Perkins. Other members include Left Behind Rapture series author, Tim LaHaye. Founder of Focus on the Family and the Family Research Council, James Dobson. Uh, let's see, former director of the Christian Coalition, Ralph Reed, American Family Association, American Family Radio founder, Donald Wildman. They're funded by the DeVos and Prince families, the families behind the creation of such horrors as Betsy DeVos and the mercenary army formerly known as Blackwater. Other families bankrolling the group are the Cokes and the Mercers, who were major investors in Cambridge Analytics. Kellyanne Conway is a member of the organization. So you'd think we know about such a powerful association of Trump administration officials, Christian evangelicals, and far-right plutocrats. And we will when we talk to award-winning author and media analyst Ann Nelson, author of the new book, Shadow Network, Media, Money, and the Secret Hub of the Radical Right. It all sounds very creepy, but it's even creepier than you think. What they want to do is end democracy as we know it here in the U.S. and replace it with a theocracy mixed with a plutocracy, which creates a government by the rich, for the rich, who rule in the name of God. Yes, it's that creepy. Then on tomorrow's show, the LFS movement continues in France, and we'll be speaking with ethics who is a member of the Paris-based platform Denquette Militante, which describes itself as a milita militant research collective formed in the wake of the 2016 Nuit Debout protests, something we covered here on This Is Hell. And you, if you just go to our website, thisishell.com, and you search on the words Nuit Debout, N-U-I-T-D-E-B-O-U-T, you can find our discussions on the topic. Platform De Denquette Militant seek to recast the framework of workers' inquiry and co-research in the present conjuncture with an analytical focus that attends to both situated trajectories of mobilization and new dynamics of capitalist exploitation. Whew. 
I know, pretty complicated. But you can find out more about their group at platenqmil.com. P-A-L, I'm sorry, P-L-A-T-E-N-Q-M-I-L.com. We'll have a conversation with Ethics about the Collective's Viewpoint article, Back to the Future, the Yellow Vest Movement, and the Riddle of Organization, the Uprising of the Yellow Vest, and its persistently tenac- persistent tenacity. Mark a point of no return. In our opinion, there is a before and an after the Yellow Vest, at least in Europe, and in terms of class struggle. That's all from the group Platform Denquette Militante. And, of course, we'll have a moment of truth with Jeff Dorchin. So this week we started by reminding you that less than a century ago, everybody, everybody universally knew race, nationality, and sex defines each and every person in the world. Then science proved otherwise, and ever since, racists have denied that science and all science because science proves that we are all the same and racists can't deal with science if it disproves their racism. Then today we'll be discussing a massive propaganda network that promotes hatred, stokes fear, markets and outright lies, pushing the nation to the far right, and now holds an immense amount of power within the Trump administration. And tomorrow we'll get back to the Yellow Vest movement and find out what's happened since our last report way back in February, back when every media outlet was telling us that the movement would end any day now. Of course, we'll end this week's shows with a moment of truth featuring the dulcet tones of contributor Jeff Dorchin. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show, Alex Jerry. Earlier on this week's show, I mentioned how this year, due to our recent schedule change, I was able to have a four-day Thanksgiving break for the first time since 1995. I described how my four-day break was so exhausting that... I need another four-day break. We had family visiting, and as they were driving back and forth from the Lansing, Michigan area, which means driving through the lake effect snow region along the southern edge of Lake Michigan all through Indiana and into southeastern Michigan, with a winter storm predicted for their drive home Sunday, they wanted to make certain to watch the local news weather reports. I know, I know, you can just check your phone, but have you ever seen WGN-TV's Tom Skilling's weather forecast? Want to know where all the Enron money went? Check out Tom Skilling's amazing weather center, which had to have been paid for with the ill-gotten gains from his brother, former Enron CEO Jeffrey Skilling's crimes. At least that's my conspiracy theory. With Jeffrey now out of jail, having been released in February, who knows? Maybe Tom's weather center will get an infusion of hard, cold, non-sequential cash in an update. But to watch the weather, you often see the news. And the news was awful was horrible this weekend if you haven't seen it and i suggest that you do everything you can to not see it video was released showing chicago police body slamming 29 year old bernard kirsch i don't need to tell you that kirsch is black do i because this would not have happened to a white person it's an awful video where kirsch's head bounces off the cement sidewalk near the curb and his body appears lifeless. It's an awful video, and no circumstances can justify this kind of violence. But don't worry, Chicago police and the media are trying to find a justification. First, it was Kirsch was drunk. Then it was he was drunk and in public. Then it was he was drunk in public and yelling profanities at cops. Then they added in he had spit at cops. Then the story became Kirsch licked the officer's face. Finally, it was revealed that Kirsch is schizophrenic, none of which justifies body slamming someone to the sidewalk 
bouncing their skull off concrete, leaving them unconscious with bruises all over their face, and then holding them for far too long in jail despite the family and uh, Rainbow Coalition posting bond. Police are supposed to be trained in mitigation, that is reducing the chance of any seriousness, severity, and the pain of violence. They are not supposed to be body-slamming people to the ground, and if they do, then that is a failure of police or training. Nobody is training cops to body-slam people to the ground. It's such a disturbing video, and because my girlie's mom and her aunt needed to watch the weather, I saw the horrible images more than a dozen times, and at least half of those viewings were inadvertent, with the news being in the midst of showing the beating when I tuned in. It was horrible. Changing channels, and all of a sudden I just see that body slamming and the lifeless body laying there yet again. It got so bad that in one news report on Chicago's ABC7 News, in less than 90 seconds, they showed the video seven times. That's less than once every 13 seconds, and the video is only six seconds long. I understand the importance of seeing someone who works for the state abusing their power by abusing a citizen as citizen police officers are sworn to serve not body slam, but showing it seven times in a row numbs the viewer, normalizes the brute force. It, it might even cause wrestling fans to cheer at the violent and potentially deadly takedown. It was literally making me sick to my stomach, and I'm not using that word incorrectly. I was literally near puking. Like I, I was, it felt like I was some kind of droog being reprogrammed to hate violence. After family left early Sunday to avoid the storm that was arriving, I turned on CNN to see what the hell goes on there on Sunday mornings. How the hell would I know? On Fareed Zakaria GPS, Zakaria was reporting on the potential for the Labour Party to win parliamentary elections and Jeremy Corbyn to become the next Prime Minister of England. Beneath an image of a smiling, waving Corbyn, Fareed Zakaria GPS ran the Chiron Specter of Socialism, which is weird because GPS has yet to show an image of President Trump with the Chiron Specter of Fascism. Zakaria's elitist Wall Street allegiances didn't stop there. Freed frames the issue of taxes not as taking money from the rich and giving it to the poor, but what would, quote, drive taxes up on corporations and the rich to pay for a significant increase in day-to-day public spending. Freed can't say, to help people who need help, to give everyone easy and affordable access to health, education, housing, food, transportation, clean water, and air. You know, the things you need to live. If Fareed did, he'd experience spontaneous combustion, I'm pretty sure. Which is why I tune in every so often, which is the only reason I tune in, to see Fareed Zakaria spontaneously combust. We received some listener feedback on report on my Thanksgiving from earlier this week and why a representative of my new healthcare provider asked me how often I see family determining that I never see my family, despite the fact that I had just spent more than three weeks over less than three months with my family. We'll share that email with you after today's guest when we read listener feedback. Another end of the world is possible. This is hell. There is a far-right Christian evangelical organization with immense power, whose members include some of the highest-ranking Trump administration officials and whose supporters include the vice president and whose goals include undermining U.S. democracy and establishing some sort of hybrid theocracy slash plutocracy ruled by the wealthiest, whose power is divined by God. 
the whole thing is frightening as hell. And here to tell us all about it, award-winning author and media analyst Ann Nelson, author of the new book, Shadow Network, Media, Money, and the Secret Hub of the Radical Right. Welcome to This Is Hell, Ann. Thank you. You you can follow Ann on Twitter at A Nelson A, the letter A Nelson A, and you can find out more about her at her website, Ann-Nelson.com. That's with an E, A-N-N-E-Nelson.com. You write how one day in August 2004, as I drove down the street in my hometown of Stillwater, Oklahoma, I turned the radio dial to a new station. I settled on a random call-in show and sat back to listen. The host was denouncing the candidacy of John Kerry in terms that went something like this. He legalized gay marriage in Massachusetts, he said. That's exactly what he'll do all over the country if he gets elected president of the United States. An anxious elderly woman called into the host. I've been married to my husband more than 40 years. Are you saying my marriage would be in danger? That's right, the host answered. John Kerry is threatening the sanctity of marriage, including yours, so you better get out and vote. That's obviously not true in any way. John Kerry nor anyone has ever said that gay marriage would nullify all other marriages. In your research, how typical is it for conservative media to simply outright lie to their audience, knowingly sharing something that is not true in order to influence their audience? Or are they more so just misleading them? I would say both happen quite a lot. Um, and right now, the, the drum that they're banging is that Democrats favor something that's called birthday abortions, where babies are killed as they emerge from the womb after nine months gestation. And this is not the case. They call it abortion on demand. Um, they've made animated films that are shown in churches illustrating this. And the problem is that you have so many news deserts in the middle of the country that a lot of people don't really access verifiable sources of information and professional journalism. But do you think you could you could convince that audience otherwise, even if you gave them countering information, proving uh, even maybe showing, you know, science that backs up your claims? Do you think they'd actually listen or change their point of view? Well, when you when in Shadow Network, I look at who the hardcore supporters of Republicans and Democrats are, and there's 20 to 25 percent in each camp, which leaves a lot of voters who uh, do not go to the polls. And activating the unengaged voters has been the strategy of this movement: finding fundamentalists who have not been voting and directing this information and misinformation to them and telling them that it's their Christian duty to go and vote in their direction. So I think that the race to 2020 is going to be targeted get out the vote campaigns on both sides. Do you think that will be as, I know it won't be as effective initially because the Democrats at this point are playing catch up, uh, but do you think that it will be effective for Democrats as well as Republicans as we move toward the future? It depends on how strategic the Democrats are going to be. Um, there's a lot of, of noise in the atmosphere that goes back to the popular vote. And, of course, Hillary Clinton won the popular vote by 3 million, and she lost the Electoral College by less than 100,000 in three states, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. So if the Democrats don't pay attention to how the Electoral College actually works, they miss, may misfire. 
But on the other hand, there's a lot of things in their favor. If you have get out the vote for millennials, uh, they're, they're solidly in the Democrats' camp in terms of public opinion and policies. There are a lot of middle ground voters, including uh, white Protestant voters in middle America, who are uncomfortable with the current state of affairs. So I, I think it's a combination of how much energy and how much strategy the two sides are going to devote to it. Do terms like malarkey get millennials out to vote? Ooh, I think you'd need to interpret it for them. <laughs> <laughs> I was talking to somebody this weekend who's 80 years old, and she told me uh, that uh, she knows what the word malarkey means. So why doesn't everybody else? And I said, because you're over 50 years old. So what would you say to someone who, you know, an avid consumer of right wing media who argues that, you know, right wing media might lie, but sure, everybody lies. The left wing media lies too. How would you react to somebody who just says it's all lies? I I do have these conversations when I travel in the Midwest and the Southwest, uh, and I I I try to explain something based on my seven years of teaching at the Columbia School of Journalism which is that professional reporting involves multiple perspectives, fact-checking, editing, lawyering. Uh, it, is, it is a real serious discipline. And that reporting exists apart from the leanings of a publication. So the Wall Street Journal is undoubtedly a conservative newspaper that addresses the business community, but its reporting is first rate. So if you see something in the journal, it is professionally reported. Uh, other publications and, and outlets may be more sympathetic toward, towards positions of liberals, but you can still tell whether they're professionally reported or not. And I think that the journalistic establishment has done a poor job of explaining itself. And what I say is, you know, you have the term citizen journalist. Well, do you want to go to a, a citizen dentist? Are you comfortable with that? Uh, I think the facts are at least as important. That's really funny because I've talked to people who are science writers. They've had a lot of difficulty finding people who have a background in science, who have a PhD in science, and at the same time have experience as a journalist. And a lot of scientists believe that they, and a lot of science journalists believe that the, uh, scientists have done a poor job in describing their work and how they do it. And now here you are saying that people in the media are doing a poor job of their work and how they do it. Why do you think that is the case? Why doesn't the media point out that, as you were saying, a citizen journalist could be as dangerous as a citizen dentist. Yeah, I think that people have taken so much for granted in terms of all of our democratic institutions, and I'm talking about going back over 100 years. You know, modern journalism has not been around that long, really. It was post-Civil War. And so once it got institutionalized, uh, it, it connected the country. Newspapers and local radio stations and so on would read Associated Press wire services at the top of the hour. They'd run them on the front pages. So Americans were able to make collective decisions based on the same notion of the facts. And as you've had this colony collapse of newspapers and buyouts of local radio stations uh, that have been kind of enveloped by some of these fundamentalist networks, you lose a lot of that. So we're talking past each other. Uh, I have been listening to these radio stations saying that the reason you shouldn't vote for Hillary Clinton is that she's a demon. And it's how do you fact check that? 
<laughs> so, uh, but it, that's not to say that the Associated Press or whatever national media outlets that we did have that we could share, that we could find a common ground in, that they were doing a perfect job. They were certainly open to uh, criticism by media critics. So what would you, again, what would you say to somebody who argues, hey, they weren't doing that great of a job anyway. They weren't representing my point of view, either from the left or the right. And they were uh, using this guise of objectivity to make it seem like they actually were objective when it's impossible for anybody to be completely objective. Well, I think that objectivity is kind of a red herring. That's where you go to uh, professional reporting. You know, did it happen? Did it happen in this way? And the criterion you can use for news organizations is do they run uh, corrections? You know, when somebody at the New York Times makes a mistake, the paper runs a correction and it is humiliating for all concerned, but they do it because they feel a responsibility to the public record. So nobody's saying that the, that the AP or any other news organization is perfect, but if you have an honest effort to talk to both sides of a question, which is something that broadcasting lost with the demise of the Fairness Doctrine in 1987 with Reagan, where all of a sudden broadcast outlets didn't have to report both sides of a controversy. And that gave rise to all of this fundamentalist uh, broadcasting and right-wing talk shows, which are really unidirectional messaging. They, they use the formats of news reporting, but they only show one side. And so you listen to these fundamentalist stations, as I have, ad, <laughs> I won't say ad nauseum, but at length. Um, and they're only telling one side of the story. They only promote right-wing Republican candidates and policies. You never hear a kind word or a representation of a Democrat. Whereas on, on professionally reported outlets, you do. You hear, you hear representations of both sides of the story, and then they'll tell you what they think, but you can also decide what you think. I seriously, I don't know. I don't know if our show would be on the air if there wasn't, uh, if the Fairness Doctrine was in place. While I do have people on the show who I may or may not agree with, and I do often pose questions in a framework of being a devil's advocate, I'm really not certain if this kind of show would exist if we, if there was a Fairness Doctrine. Do you think that we need to get back to having a Fairness Doctrine? Well, as I understand it, you are not uh, a radio station with a federal license. Is that the case? Uh, we are broadcast on three different radio stations that do have federal licenses, yes. So you're a program. And if you were the only program on those stations, I would question that. I would guess that they have news reporting as well as your opinion reporting, which would meet the requirements. All right. Well, then I'm fine. Then thank God I can still broadcast. Uh, you write America's. Cool, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you write America's. Yeah, it's not saying that you don't have editorializing. Yes, that's a that's a very significant part of news reporting. But you also have fact based reporting, etc. You know. Uh, so it's it's really you know, and fact based reporting will say uh, the person that was shot by the police said this. The spokesman for the police department said that. You know, it's just it's just basic. 
Right. Uh, you write that national America's national news media were caught off guard and experts scrambled to find an explanation as to what was happening with the rise of right wing media. The New York Times turned to Fox News. Trump voters don't believe what anyone in the news media is telling them, except for maybe Fox News, stated one op ed. The New Yorker named The Apprentice as the show that made Trump's presidency possible. A report from Harvard's Berkman Klein Center pointed to news platforms making a case that conservatives shunned professional online media organizations in favor of pro-Trump, highly partisan media outlets such as Breitbart News. And all of this led to the election of Donald Trump as president of the United States. To what extent do you think that's true? Do those on the right only seek out right-wing media outlets? Because on Fox News, they argue that at least they will have Democrats on their panels, but they claim MSNBC never does, which not only equates Fox's right-wing leaning with MSNBC's left-wing leaning, but it also packages MSNBC as far more left and unbalanced than Fox News right-wing broadcasting. So does today's right-wing as well as the left now only seek out information that confirms their bias? Well, in in my book, Shadow Network, that passage you quoted is leading into a section that says all of these factors were indeed in operation. And I don't believe in any single cause for an event like the November 2016 elections. However, there is this whole world of not just fundamentalist broadcasting, but the way that the Council for National Policy and its affiliates have mobilized fundamentalist churches and weaponized them in the political system. So we're talking about voter guides that are distributed in the sanctuaries. We're talking about them inserted in the church bulletins. We're talking about pastors who download sermons written by this political movement and showing the the videos in the churches. So you've got this entire block of, of voters, especially focused in swing states, who are being told how to vote as though, with the words, it's your religious obligation. Now, that is a change in our political atmosphere, and it is not a level playing field. Uh, you do not have this level of activation of, of other religious groups or groups that you know do not have a religious affiliation in this space this nonprofit space so i'm talking about a whole networked movement that involves media big money millions and millions of dollars and uh operations on a state level as well as a national level that's why i call it the shadow network there are all of these moving parts in this machine did something change to allow religious organizations to start reading uh, scripts, essentially, that were written by far right wing political organizations, putting within Bibles and putting within the scriptures um, you know, tips on who to vote for? Did something in the law change to allow that? Or is this still up in the air when it comes to the legality of this process? Yeah, it is a shady area in terms of the legality. There was something called the Johnson Amendment that was passed that said no nonprofit organization, tax-exempt organization, should be doing outright campaigning. And that that uh, amendment has been eroded over a few decades. Uh, and it's been eroded by, by various organizations on on all sides. But I have not seen it as aggressively attacked as by this movement to the point where fundamentalist churches have even been recording some of their activities in, in the political realm 
and sending tapes to the IRS, daring them to to go after them uh, because they'll benefit because they think they'll benefit from the publicity. And the IRS has been very timid about enforcing the regulations. In the New York Times this week, there was an op-ed saying that what is needed is a left-wing religious movement. Do you think that's what is needed, or do we just need to take the politics back out of religion? I think that uh, we're in this very interesting point where the silent majority has shifted. Uh, I think it used to the, the the right used to be silent, and this right at this moment is very, very noisy. Um, but I think that there are a lot of people in the middle road, including Midwestern Protestants, uh, many of them, uh, who are, are quite uncomfortable with the current state of affairs and they're looking for a place to land. They feel uncertain. Um, and I'm fine with a religious left, but they tend to be more active and vocal. And I, I feel in my conversations in places like Wisconsin and, and Michigan and Oklahoma that that people in this middle, uh, you know, who, who uh, are not going to be socially out there in the vanguard, but they're going to be basically tolerant and and uh, decent. They, they're looking for a place to go right now. And the churches, the, the mainline Protestant churches, like the Methodists and the Lutherans and the Presbyterians, for the most part felt it was, it, it was inappropriate for them to get involved in politics. So I, I think that this is a gap that would need to be subtly addressed with political rhetoric in the coming year. You discovered the rapidly evolving ties connecting the manpower and media of the Christian right with the finances of Western plutocrats and the strategy of right-wing Republican political operatives. Many of their connections were made through a secretive organization called the Council for National Policy, you report, which, as one member has said, brings together the donors and the doers. How secretive is the Council for National Policy, and how did you discover it? Is it hiding out in the open? Yeah, it's uh, it's it found its own shadows. Um, it was founded in 1981, and it's got three components. One is big money, uh, the DeVos family, which Betsy DeVos married into in Michigan, is one of their major donors, also a, a financier named Foster Fries, the Templeton Foundation. Um, then it's got the media people. It's got very active uh, radio networks, there are several of them, including the, the very large Salem Media, and their owners are members of the Council for National Policy, as well as representatives of a lot of fundamentalists. Oh, everything from movie production companies to, uh, to digital platforms to uh, people who work with fundamentalist television, which is a big market people overlook in the United States. So the, the third area that you have are the political strategists. Now, Richard Vigory is an old name from the Nixon and Goldwater days. He's been active throughout his career. And these are people who are really astute about designing long-range strategies to slice and dice the battleground states and find these hidden pockets of fundamentalist voters who can be activated and sent to the polls. 
You write, the Council for National Policy was founded in 1981 by a small group of arch-conservatives who realized that the tides of history had turned against them. They represented an American past dominated by white Protestant male property owners. They dreamed of restoring a 19th century patriarchy that limited the civil rights of women, minorities, immigrants, and workers with no income tax to vex the rich or social safety net to aid the poor. So the Tea Party started with Obama becoming president. It seems the Council for National Policy started with with Reagan becoming president. Since Reagan, the country has moved increasingly to the right, including even presidents from the Democratic Party showing little support for unions or their members when considering free trade pacts. They're mostly supported by Republicans and conservatives. Democrats create welfare reform that cut welfare and was mostly supported by Republicans again. Democrats deregulate the financial markets, which was a policy driven by Republicans. Mass incarceration increases under Democratic presidents, even increases in the number of wars the U.S. is engaging in under presidents from the Democratic Party. Did the Council for National Policy not only push the right farther to the right, but it did it also push Democrats to the center, if not center right, because often Democrats don't care what right wing media is reporting, even dismissing it because they don't watch or listen. So how does the Council for National Policy even affect those who are not conservative Republicans? Well, when I talk about the Council for National Policy, you know, I don't want to suggest that it's this major agent it's a, it's a network. And so the actions are carried out by its affiliates. There are some 400 members, many of whom are heads of their organizations. In terms of its secrecy, uh, the membership is secret, but over the years, the roster of members has been leaked several times. So that's one way we know who's in it. Their meetings are secret. The proceedings are secret. Occasionally there's been a leak. So we, you know, I, I really spent a lot of time in Shadow Network piecing together who they are, what they do. In terms of their impact on our political life, well, you look at something like the National Rifle Association and its, its head, Wayne LaPierre, is a very active member of the Council for National Policy. What uh, some of these organizations including NRA, will do is get involved at a local or state level in elections. Uh, They'll whip up anxiety about uh, a a proposition or a piece of legislation or a candidate, and often under, under false pretenses, putting out information that is simply incorrect. And then they'll, they'll use that to create coattails for Republican candidates. Um, So in that way, they put, Democratic candidates at a disadvantage, rather than, I would say, pushing them necessarily to the right, they destroy their center of gravity. They have a position, they've worked it out, they know from polling where it stands, and then all of a sudden, they're under assault with this misinformation, and they abandon their center of gravity and become less effective in communicating with the public, because they're, they're running for cover against these false statements. You write that you discovered hundreds of broadcast outlets, such as the radio station I heard back in 2004, that belong to members of the Council for National Policy. Three key players dominate the landscape, Salem Media Group, as you mentioned earlier, BOT Radio Network, and the American Family Radio Networks. Over the years, they have connected their holdings to a cohort of pastors, politicians, and tycoons, creating an armada of radio stations and news outlets loyal to the CNP's 
political agenda and selling millions of Americans on its harsh combination of plutocracy and theocracy. How aware is the viewing public, the consuming audience, uh, that what they are watching is a propaganda machine for plutocracy and theocracy? How aware are they that they are being convinced into supporting governing by the richest people who rule in the name of God? Well, I, I think that they've, these organizations and their programming, um, if, 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 you, if you listen to the radio shows, there's a variation. Some of them are real fire and brimstone. Um, so the, the American Family Association and their radio network uh, is, is really quite extreme. And that's one place where you'll hear that such, a, such and such a politician is a son of Satan. And it's always a Democrat that's a son of Satan, I should add. Um, and that so-and-so is a demon. Um, then, then you've got the, the radio broadcasts as a program by Tony Perkins, who is the outgoing president of the Council for National Policy. He's a Southern Baptist minister, and he's the head of the Family Research Council, which is working to roll back civil and political rights for the LGBT population and roll back women's reproductive rights. He's an Islamophobe who has said that Muslims should not be considered members of a legitimate religion that's protected by the Constitution. It's quite extreme, but his program, uh, he, he's very smooth-talking. He will have major climate deniers from, from Congress on his program, and it's quite strategic. And then it's punctuated by ads telling listeners that it is, quote, their Christian obligation to run as candidates in their communities and represent this movement in Washington. So again, it's all of a piece, the ads, the programming, the radio shows, the political campaigns, the money goes in a circle and it is big money, but so does the strategy. And I don't see anything resembling that uh, on the Democrat side. You write these stations, audiences have lost or abandoned professional news outlets. And because their interests had been ignored by major national media, they are more vulnerable than ever. What were their interests that were being ignored? Is Fox News the fault of the national media, the rest of the national media, ignoring those who are now watching Fox News? Well, uh, the national media, you know, you've had a huge economic uh, upheaval in the news business that really started in the late 20th century. And the economics shifted, the digital ad revenue uh, captured a lot of, of the profits, and big newspaper chains acquired a lot of local papers and then gutted them, abandoned them, stripped them out. So a lot of communities, several thousand communities in the United States are left without any local newspaper without any professional reporters. Uh, state house reporting has been decimated. We've lost something like a third of our state house reporting in reporters in this, in this period. So I don't, you know, if you're surrounded by this fundamentalist media and you go online and you live in your social media bubble, it may be that this is all the information you're going to receive. Then you have the combined influence of Fox and Sinclair, and Sinclair is a corporation that's acquired many regional and local television stations and also harmonizes with this right-wing movement. So 
there are always pockets in every state of people who get professional journalism through newspapers, magazines, radio stations, watch PBS, etc. But you can almost see them on the electoral map as these blue dots that are urban areas and college towns in a sea of, of red. Rural voters who feel who are being who are being stoked to feel anger and outrage at some kind of mythical coastal elite that is exploiting them and uh, wants to enforce federal regulations on them. A lot of times, those federal regulations are things like clean air and clean water regulations that are protecting them and their children. They're involving public education, public schools. So they're being told by this, this right-wing media that this is some kind of conspiracy to give them clean water. Um, and, and that's where the disconnect really occurs. You write the wallpaper effect of wraparound media can have a powerful impact. Abraham Hamilton III, host of American Family Radio's Hamilton Corner, described the October 1st, 2017 mass shooting in Las Vegas as Satan's work, immune to legislation. The Democrats, he complained, were exploiting the victims by calling for hearings on gun control. This charge was repeated, often in the same language, by other Council for National Policy-affiliated political and media figures across platforms, including the Daily Signal, the Hillsdale Collegian and Fox News's Todd Stames show. Now, this falls in line with a couple of past guests we've recently had on the show. We talked to Adam Kotzko about his N Plus One magazine article, The Evangelical Mind, and Tad DeLay, author of Against What Does the White Evangelical Want? They are both people who were raised as Christian evangelicals and are no longer. So this falls in line with what Adam and Tad were telling us about Christian evangelicalism. That is, anything bad is Satan's work and Anyone who tries to undo Satan's work is arrogant, full of hubris, even blasphemous, and reacting in a way that they may call social justice. And if you are trying to do the right thing, you are trying to mimic, if not mock, Christ, and your good work should be dismissed as blasphemy. By claiming that any action is the work of the devil, do Christian evangelicals eliminate the possibility of any solution to the problem at all? Does blaming it all on Satan disempower citizens in a democracy, even purposely and intentionally undermining people power? Well, uh, first of all, I'd, I'd just like to distinguish within the terminology, you know, the United States has millions and millions of people who describe themselves as Christian who do not subscribe to this philosophy and many, many millions who, who actively oppose it. Evangelical is also one of the broader categories. It, it, it means people who consider themselves to be born again in theological terms. It includes uh, not just the conservatives, but also moderates, and it also includes liberals like the Red Letter Christian movement. Their fundamentalists are tend to be more conservative, and that is that is the subset that I I mostly write about in my book. But there's even divergence within the fundamentalists. So I think it's really really important for us not to 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 lump categories together and assume that one one description fits all. Now, in terms of blaming whatever happens on the devil or God's will, yeah, I do think that that, that approach can undermine uh, civic, civic life. Uh, you know, you can say to them, God helps those who help themselves, right? I mean, if you want good public schools, then you figure out how to get public schools and support public school teachers who, who donate so much of their energy and and their 
uh, well-being to society's children. And the other problem with this whole issue of demonizing, literally demonizing opponents and different parts of the polity is that it makes it very difficult for, for society to work together. It, it really creates discord and it's reflected in what you have in Congress where you have legislation that needs to be carried out for the good of the country. And you have such a polarized atmosphere where the Republican Senate would rather have the public suffer than have themselves be shown as collaborating with Democratic people in Congress uh, on, on something that, that serves the common good. So we really need to, to go back to, to finding our, our common story as a, as a nation. You can write that groups run by CNP members and their favorite candidates benefit from a subsidized turnkey digital package. Their coordinated apps collaborate across platforms and weave seemingly independent groups into tightly networked operations. And you point out that these measures played a significant role in the 2016 presidential vote surprise and continue to affect the electoral landscape today. But the CNP's preferred Republican candidate that year was Senator Ted Cruz, When uh, Donald Trump won the nomination, the movement turned on a dime, delivering its national network of media and manpower to carry Trump's message in return for his promise to advance its policies objectives. The impact of this network was born again in key races in the 2018 midterm elections and can be anticipated for 2020. But if the CNP is so powerful, then why didn't Ted Cruz win the nomination? Why don't we have a President Cruz if the CNP has such political influence? And again, I, I don't, this, the Council for National Policy is a network. So it's, it's not an acting body. Uh, it helps its members collaborate across these various areas and platforms. Now, they did, in fact, support Ted Cruz quite, quite vocally. And they were surprised by the success of Donald Trump. Now, let's remember that Ted Cruz had a real charisma deficit and the fact that he won any primaries could be considered a surprise in itself. He is not the most dynamic candidate you will ever see, either on television or in person. On the other hand, Donald Trump did have his own weird charisma. He had his his television celebrity working for him, and he also was able to energize this base that ran parallel to the fundamentalists. It's not a complete overlap. It's connected and added on to the fundamentalist contingent. It it could just barely push them over the 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 link the the edge for for the electoral college. Remember, only 100,000 votes in three states won the Electoral College. That is very slender. So, so their backing for Donald Trump occurred because they really felt he was going to be a preferable, preferable option to Hillary Clinton. And there was, a, there was a powwow, and then there was a gathering of some 100,000 1,000 fundamentalist leaders at the Marriott Marquis Hotel in Times Square, where a deal was struck between them and Donald Trump. And they basically said, all right, we'll give you our ground troops, we'll give you our money, we'll give you our strategists, and you will give us the ability to present nominees for the federal courts. You will ditch your first choice for your running mate, Chris Christie, and substitute our guy, Mike Pence, 
you will allow us to write sections of the Republican platform for the National Convention, which indeed happened. And you'll appoint an evangelical advisory council. And this council was a third members of the Council for National Policy. So they got a lot for their money. And what they've actually said in retrospect is that this served their purposes better. They say in, in, in many sites, they say, well, Donald Trump may not be a man of God, but he's an instrument of God. And sometimes they call him God's wrecking ball. Oh, so man. they feel, yeah, isn't that a great term? And, and, the, and the target is the federal government. They ultimately want to bring down entire federal departments, and they're on the way. They have decimated the State Department staff and budget. They have gone after the Department of Education. They have made major progress in the destruction of the Environmental Protection Agency. They have wiped out complete departments of scientists at the U.S. Department of Agriculture. All of this is done behind the scenes while everybody else is running around talking about impeachment. But they have accomplished a major to-do list in terms of their political agenda. So they are quite happy with Donald Trump. They're also hoping that Mike Pence, as their plan B, will, will hold up for the next year. Uh, but they are going for broke. This is a critical year for them. I'm glad you brought up impeachment and Mike Pence, because my very next question is, how much better off will the U.S. be if Trump is impeached and Pence is made president? Will it actually get worse? Uh, I think that Mike Pence would would subscribe to the same policies that Donald Trump has been implementing. He might be more effective because he's more experienced in working with Congress and he doesn't have the, the strong negatives that Trump has. Now, in terms of his uh, performance in an electoral setting, I've seen him in person and in video appearances both. He has some of the same problems Ted Cruz has with a different accent. But in terms of a caretaker president riding out the administration, I think, again, they would be going for broke on the two areas that are really important to them. And one is appointing lifetime judges to the federal courts who are going to be able to implement their will in terms of things like voter suppression, gerrymandering, rolling back LGBT rights, rolling back women's reproductive rights. They have, they have really bulldozed a record number of federal judges into these positions. Lifetime appointments and a lot of their people are in their 30s without qualifications, they never even tried a case. So if they can consolidate their hold on the judiciary, they will have an impact on, on generations to come. Uh, and, and then the other area is this, this campaign I'm talking about waged against the very federal agencies that are supposed to be representing and administering the public interest. You mentioned the many scandals involving the Me Too movement and scandals within uh, Christian evangelical, Christian fundamentalist groups uh, and within the CNP, especially within the Council of National Policy. Uh, you talk about the problems that uh, happened with the Southwestern Baptist Theological uh, Seminary, and uh, you mentioned many of these. And the, the thing that I couldn't keep out of my mind was what explains this lack of vetting, this lack of oversight in bringing people into these organizations who clearly have very, very checkered pasts. Does that reveal anything to you about those organizations? 
Oh my, this was a huge surprise for me in writing the book because I thought I was going to be writing a, a, a book of, you know, of, of political science. And I found that Shadow Network quickly became a soap opera uh, because you have figure after figure in this movement who is involved in not just Me Too offenses, a, a, a very large number of criminal offenses, and some of them extremely sordid. Uh, and, and I came to, you, you've got, oh my goodness, well, you know, I won't go through the list of soap opera crimes that are listed in the book, and these characters are quite extraordinary characters as well. Um, but I think that I grew up in Oklahoma, so I am familiar with the culture. And among some of these churches, there is a very repressed atmosphere. Uh, my, my friends who went to these churches were not allowed to dance, to play cards. Uh, they, they were, you know, going to a school dance was, was considered sinful, right? And I think that when you have people squeezed into that, that small a niche in their life, uh, something kind of explodes, and so they live in this, this, this culture where they're not supposed to be involved in any of these normal activities that everyone else is. And then they can kind of go to the other extreme and become porn addicts and, and pederasts and, and all of these other things because, you know, they just can't take their repression. When, uh, to what extent is the message of these organizations like Salem Media, American Family, Radio Network, to what extent is their message one of white supremacy and privilege and even racist or racial denialism? Because this summer I stumbled upon a right-wing station in Cincinnati, and then I dialed over to another right-wing station, this one somewhere in Michigan, that had different hosts saying the exact same thing, which is there can no longer be any racism in the United States because Barack Obama was voted president twice, thereby ending all racism, making any claim of racism wrong. So is the right-wing Christian message of white racial superiority and a wholesale denial of racism, is that one of the major messages that's going on in this right-wing media network? Well, uh, it, it's, a, it's a complicated question because they do have some some prominent members in the Council for National Policy who are, are African-American pastors, and one of their spokespeople is Martin Luther King's niece, Elvita King. Uh, and it's more this ethos that, that if there was ever a racial problem in this country, it's over. They would, they would probably say that they don't have an issue with black people, except for those black people who are criminals and da, da 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 and it could go in an unfortunate direction, but it's not as simple as, you know, a single sentence about race and racism. Um, and I think that, you know, one thing that, that I note in the book is that the most segregated city in the United States is New York City. So we have so many unresolved questions about race in this country. Uh, that need to be part of the national conversation, um, and and I don't I don't see it happening certainly in in, in their ambit. 
You write how you spent time among the partisans of the movement, attending their meetings, their church services, and their rallies. I listened hard and found virtues as well as failings. I spent long hours of time listening to fundamentalist radio shows and watching videos to learn their perspective, and I heard valid points, ingenious strategies, and outright outright lies. Now, first of all, congratulations on not being a drug addict and an alcoholic by the time you were done doing all of that. But how important are those outright lies that we were discussing at the very beginning to their message, could they still have the same success that they have had by simply embracing their virtues, eliminating their failings, making valid points and ingenious strategies without the lying? Yeah, I don't, I don't think they would succeed without the lies. So, for example, when both Ted Cruz and Donald Trump use their line that Democrats like to execute babies, right, which is what they say, quote unquote, execute babies. Uh, this obviously stirs profound emotions in people. I mean, execute babies, what a horror, except it, it doesn't happen. It's not true. If you go to the same people and say, Democrats want to have women have reproductive rights under these circumstances, it gets much less inflammatory. And I don't think they would mobilize people in remotely the same way if they really made a, a valid representation of the true positions. The way they went after Governor uh, Northam of Virginia in just this way was was really uh, horrific because they 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 will take somebody's statement and re-edit it and use it selectively and turn it on its head and take it out of context until it says something utterly different than what the person actually said. Uh, and, and that's, that's really not helpful. You know, that, you know, if we want to have an honest discussion about any issue, that's what I mean about professional reporting. Tell us what the guy said, and then we can decide whether we agree with it or not, but don't turn it into a total misrepresentation. They've done the same thing with Planned Parenthood and they have these entire feature films that are, are, uh, you know, there's one about Planned Parenthood called Unplanned that opened nationwide. And, it's, and it has a, an alleged Planned Parenthood official saying, oh, we, we give out abortions the way McDonald's sells hamburgers and fries. And we haven't met our quota this year. You know, it, it's just, you know, it's just offensive. If you want to have a conversation about Planned Parenthood, have it. But don't just pump out this misinformation that, that misleads people and activates them to vote under false pretenses. And you can even go back to what happened to ACORN. And if and at our website, we might still have the interview that we did with John Atlas years ago when ACORN was being taken down as one of those institutions that was being targeted by organizations on the right. You write, the conservatives faced a deadline. Once Democratic-leaning youth and minorities reached a decisive majority, which would be as early as 2031, there might be no turning back. So is the political right, the, the Christian right, trying to set up undemocratic, even theocratic minority rule in the United States? Are they trying to create a fertile environment for uh, some sort of apartheid in the United States? Well, I think that they want to secure control by what I would call undemocratic means. So, for example, when you go to certain districts where they have control over the legislature in a state, 
they will say that every polling place has to have plenty of on-street, have to have plenty of access to parking. What does that do? That makes it difficult to have a polling place at a public university because college campuses have a hard time with enough parking. But do you need to have a parking space to go vote? No, you do not. But that's a way of suppressing the millennial votes and the youth vote that will trend democratic. And you repeat this in community after community. African-American communities have their restrictions. Youth vote have theirs. In, in uh, reservations where Native Americans live, they have passed regulations that say that you have to have a street address, not a PO box in order to vote. Well, most of them happen to have PO boxes instead of street addresses on their reservations. That is clear voter suppression, and it's being implemented across the country state by state in areas where they control the, the legislature and, and the regulations. So I think that, that not just Democrats, but everybody who wants to defend American democracy has to be really energized and say, wait a minute, if, if we're going to have an electoral democracy, let's, let's have the, the, the rules be fair and equitable for all citizens. Uh, you see this in place after place. So they stimulate the votes that they feel are sure things for their side. They suppress the other votes. Uh, and there's a whole set of mechanisms that are instrumented through the courts, through the state houses where they're Republican control. And if they are able to implement enough of these in the next year, and certainly in the next five years, if they want it next November, I think our electoral democracy, as we have known it, will be effectively over. So how would you rate the Democratic Party's job in bringing the issues of voter suppression to light and in possibly doing something about the Electoral College, seeing as how that's a very undemocratic institution? How how would you rate their job so far? Well, uh, I think that it's not necessarily the exclusive job of the Democratic Party party to attend to this. This is a matter for for citizens. And I think that Republicans and Democrats should both want fair elections, uh, as well as independents. I mean, that's that's not, shouldn't be a partisan issue. Uh, In terms of how the Democrats are doing, I, I think that the national press has to have a major role in informing the public about what is actually going on. But somehow, you have to have some kind of civic civic organization or movement that says, all right, this is how democracy works. It needs information. It needs access to polling places. It needs enfranchisement of citizens in order to register to vote and to go to vote. All citizens, not just the ones who are going to vote one way or another. And you also have to kind of restore the faith, especially of young people, in the act of voting. Uh, but then the other area that really has to be done is a cleanup of the digital space. Because let's face it, the Russians have been loading social media with divisive and destructive memes and content that are wreaking havoc with, with our country. And it's been a long-term strategy. They're very good at it. And, you know, people talk about needing a wall you need a digital firewall to prevent the Russians from manipulating our, our system. And so that's not a partisan issue either. That is an issue of national defense. 
We have been speaking with award-winning author and media analyst Ann Nelson, author of the book Shadow Network, Media, Money, and the Secret Hub of the Radical Right. You can follow Ann on Twitter at A Nelson A. That's letter A, then Nelson, and then the letter A. You can find out more about her at her website, Ann-Nelson.com. That's Ann A-N-N-E. One last question for you, Ann, and as we do with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell, the question we might hate to ask you might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. You write, the cumulative effect is the creation of a parallel universe of information. You mentioned this earlier. The results have been devastating to American democracy as two parts of our country constantly talk past each other. So how sustainable is democracy as we know it here in the United States when there are parallel universes of information? I have great faith in this country. I've, I've studied history and I've seen cases where Americans have woken up, sometimes on the late side, but woken up to a crisis and pulled together and behaved with great decency. I, I have faith that that can happen. You asked earlier about the Electoral College. I think that has to be put to the side. It's not going to happen this year. Right now, with so much at stake, with such a national crisis, it's a moment of all hands on deck. How do, you destroy, how do you restore our national equilibrium and our values of, of decency and our, our fellow feeling for fellow, fellow citizens? How do you restore our place in the world as people who can defend the climate and who can be part of the solution for environmental crises? I believe that we can do this. Do we have the national will? Will there be a strategic response? That I don't know, but I hope so. And I really appreciate you being on the show with us this week. This is a fascinating book, and more and more people should become aware of the Council for National Priority. I cannot thank you enough for being on our show this week. Thank you so much, Jack. All right, take care. Manufacturing Dissent since 1996. This is hell. Alex, you know it's all the Russians. You know that, right? Are you familiar with this, Alex? Well, what are they doing now? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, so this week's question from Mel is, why are you suspending your presidential campaign? Why are you suspending your presidential campaign? The person with the best answer to this week's question from Mel wins a copy of Charles King's Gods of the Upper Air, How a Circle of Renegade Anthropologists Reinvented Race, Sex, and Gender in the 20th Century, which we featured in an interview with the author earlier on this week's show. You can hear that interview at thisishell.com. We suggest you do because Charles's book is definitely going to make our favorite books of 2019 list, which we are announcing next week. Alex, how are our listeners answering this week's question from hell so far? Why are you suspending your presidential campaign? Frank W. says, future dirt, all the bad stuff I intend to keep doing. <laughs> ADS says, Ugh, I got hairy legs that children used to rub down. <laughs> Gross. Did you read that, uh, Biden? I don't even want to know it anymore. A, it was a transcript of Biden's brain leaking out of his ears. It was pretty amazing. Uh, the uh, Anytime you say something gross, sticking a finger in a mouth or hairy legs, and then the first word is Biden, I, n- I don't want to hear anymore. Chris L. says, I realized I would never be as sexy a president as Calvin Coolidge. <laughs> so what's the point? You know what my favorite Calvin Coolidge story is? So uh, There's multiple Calvin Coolidge. Oh, ghosts. dude, there are so many. Because he was insane. You know, he was he was actually crazy. So apparently there was a famous uh, Native American chief who was coming to the White House and Calvin Coolidge hid in the bushes, put on an Indian headdress and supposedly jumped out with a toy bow and arrow and shot at him. (laughs) This guy was president? I got to read a bio of 
Calvin Coolidge. I know. Uh, why are you suspending your presidential campaign? Stephen S. says, nibbled on too many fingers. <laughs> See? God. And uh, actually, Stephen S., you might be surprised to know that um, my original idea for this question was going to be, whose fingers are you sucking on? <laughs> I decided uh, maybe it was a bad idea to post that. Uh, Rosalind B. says, video has surfaced of me saying ass in the third grade and bursting into shocked tears. <laughs> Jeremy T. says, when I was like five years old, I stole a candy bar from a store while in line with my mom because I wanted it, and she said no. Thus, any moral argument I attempt to make from that point forward is hypocrisy, and I'm disqualified to lead this nation of exemplary morality. You know, the length of that reasoning is, it sounds very professional and real. Adam K. says, don't want to be assassinated. <laughs> Nikki says, I'll be announcing the exact date and time and location of the announcement upon advisement from my pit crew, my corner men and women, my wing men and women, the people who have my six. Vermin Supreme, Pat Paulson, Dick Gregory, Eileen Miles, Waka Flocka Flame, and Kamala Harris. Wow. Brendan M's, or Brendan H says, Baby Yoda is a shoe in Why bother? <laughs> Uh, Max I says, Freedom, why are you suspending your presidential campaign? Mark S says, Vlad Putin just offered me a better job as president of Germany. John C says, Suspending my campaign is better than dropping out, or should I say copping out? Marco G says, Bad press since I mistakenly swear that a rally was a car race between candidates. Gorilla G says, That promised check from Bloomberg never arrived in the mail. Uh, why did you suspend your presidential campaign? Sebastian M says, Probably something related to all the communist propaganda I've been spreading. <laughs> Fabio L says, it became public knowledge that I listened to This Is Hell. <laughs> Richard M says, because my black ass shouldn't have been in the race in the first damn place. Sebastian W says, it was revealed that I was nothing but a horde of rabid weasels in a trench coat <laughs> thinking about running as an independent. Ronaldo M says, I'd rather be king so I could make a speech renouncing my throne and condemning all monarchy. MGB says, joining a hardcore band with Beto. <laughs> Garrett S says, because the void is no longer calling out my name. <laughs> John K says memes. Colin J says the Russian mind control lasers told me to. A couple more. Adam A says, I don't know, but if failing, if falling behind Mike Bloomberg wouldn't do it, I hope one of my friends would have had the good sense to say something to me. Looking at you, Yang, Castro, Klobuchar, Steyer, Steyer? Steyer? Steyer. The cast of all, the, the cast of Cats, the city of Des Moines, and all ships at sea. Sheesh. Tom Steyer sent me an email the other day asking me for money for his political campaign. I found that offensive. So I reported it to Facebook. It's a bad judgment if someone's hitting you up for cash. And also, finally, Real, and a billionaire doing it. Really poor that's, judgment. That's how he got to be a billionaire. Maybe. <laughs> uh, Benjamin C. finally said it's hypocritical to run for president while advocating for anarchy. It's time for some listener feedback that has been sent to us at Chuck at ThisIsHell.com. Message to us at Facebook, Facebook.com slash ThisIsHellRadio, or DM to us at ThisIsHellRadio on Twitter. Or our first submission, and the only one we'll get to today, uh, being sent to us via our Patreon page at patreon.com slash thisishell, where you can subscribe to an exclusive Patreon podcast, which we do every week only for subscribers, with a new monologue for me and a classic interview that you cannot find anywhere else online. Dan writes, Chuck, your monologue about your doctor's appointment was great. This is where I explained how a huge healthcare provider took over the last independent hospital in Illinois, where my doctor has his office, and how I was interviewed by a representative of that provider who asked how often I see my family. When I told her that I had just spent 10 days with family on vacation, another weekend with family celebrating a birthday, another weekend with family seeing a production of a play a relative directed, how my sister had just visited for four days and we were expecting relatives in town for another four days over Thanksgiving. The interviewer told me the choices were once a week, twice a week, three times a week, or more, or never. 
Despite all that time spent with family, she told me she had to put down never apologizing and telling me that every patient had complained about the question. Dan continues, my job at work is being part of the team that comes up with BS like that questionnaire. If I had to guess that was part of a depression screening, that question is awful but typical of what passes for a behavioral health screening in primary care. That combined with other questions is probably scored to determine whether the doctor should talk with you about your depression. It's all part of a larger, poorly developed algorithm. Your doctor's frustration with large health systems and algorithms like that is a sign that he's a good doctor. I hope he doesn't turn or burn out. Dan. Thanks, Dan. At least that makes some sense. But what makes more sense is if the interviewer had just asked, Are you depressed? Do you experience depression? Are you being afflicted with depression? To which I would have said, Yes, 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 a thousand times yes. You don't need to interrogate me and trick me into revealing my physical or mental health. Just ask me and I will tell you how I'm feeling, either physically or mentally. And yes, I will tell you, I'm freaking depressed. That's listener feedback. You can email us at chuck at thisishell.com or message us via Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio or DM us via Twitter at thisishellradio. And Patreon subscribers can contact us through the Patreon page, Patreon dot com slash this is hell we hope to see you at our weekly wednesday meet and greet this is hell office hours at carrie's lounge tomorrow night that's 2251 west of on chicago's little india neighborhood more than a meet and greet this is hell office hours is a think and drink join us wednesday evenings for this is hell office hours at carrie's lounge 2251 west of on the bar downstairs from this here studio and don't forget our annual this is hell holiday office party happens on wednesday evening December 18th, beginning at 6 p.m., and going until somebody does something really awful, I'm sure. Is your office too cheap to throw a holiday party? Make our holiday office party your holiday office party and invite all your co-workers to the This Is Hell Holiday Office Party. Don't have the money to actually throw a holiday office party at your office? Then bring them over to the This Is Hell Holiday Office Party. Don't particularly like everyone at your office? Then invite the cool kids to the This Is Hell Holiday Office Party. Does your work not have an office and you all work together from your own home offices? Then invite all your co-workers to the annual This Is Hell Holiday Office Party where we promise everyone who attends will get a This Is Hell related gift. Need a last-minute gift? We'll have all of our This Is Hell merchandise available. That's Wednesday, December 18th, beginning at 6 p.m. and running until who the hell knows. And remember, if you are a Patreon subscriber, you get a discount on all of our merchandise. Hey, Alex, who's on tomorrow's Wednesday's live one-hour stream beginning at 10 a.m. in the morning? Always excited to have a pseudonymous pseudonymous guest. Pseudonym. They're using a fake name. Ethics yeah. will be on uh, from the group Platform Donquet Militante. Thank you, Fergus, for sending me the alliterative or the spelled out way to say that. <laughs> I think I have that right. Maybe I don't. Uh, the Platform Donquet Militante released the uh, text Back to the Future, the Yellow Vest Movement and the Riddle of Organization. That's posted right now at a viewpoint and also notes from below. So uh, FX, we'll be talking to FX live from Paris. And he is the representative of an organization, a collective of writers, and he is not claiming that he is the only author of this work, uh, but he is just the person who is representing that collective. Uh, and when are we going to be doing Patreon this week? Friday? Hey, you want to do Friday? What time? 10? Sure. And, uh, I'm bringing back Rat News. 
You're bringing back what? Rat news. Oh, you are? Direct action. You got some rat news? Uh, I'm going to find some. All right. Good luck to you on that. That was a very, uh, that was kismet all week that one week where I got like 11 rat stories. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show host, podcast host, live streaming host, whatever, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Thanks to Alex for producing, and thanks to our guest, Ann Nelson. And uh, again, my apologies to the Russians. <laughs> There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's show, and that's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying the simple words, Everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. Matt Damon. No. Ah. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. My demon is on my butt. Ah. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride.